0: This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now,
1: here's Rick Edelman. Welcome to The Truth About Money. I'm Rick Edelman. You know we get a lot of great calls here every week on the program that touch on topics important to you, as well as your parents and your children. So this weekend, we're going to feature some of our favorite calls that might be helpful to you as we wind our way through recent market volatility. If you need help right now, call us at Edelman Financial Engines, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Or visit us at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Enjoy today's show. Let's get right to your calls. Off to St. Charles, Missouri. Terry's with us on the air. Welcome to the program, Terry. How can I help you today?
2: Yeah. Um,
3: I see the amount I need to save for retirement all the time, but most of my money is in a Roth. Does that not mean I need less money than other people since it won't be taxed? Maybe. Then I've got a second part to it. Also, my wife gets a $50,000 a year pension. How does that figure in the amount needed for retirement? Can we figure that at, say, 500000 since she's likely to live that long?
1: You mean in terms of how much money you're eventually going to collect over time from your wife's pension?
3: Yeah, exactly. I always see these figures saying that you need a million dollars or whatever. And I, I have trouble because of the Roth. Like, what's my Roth savings actually worth? Is it worth one third more? What can I figure my wife's pension at?
1: Got it. Yeah, you're asking the right question, Terry, and and that's why we need to throw away these rules of thumb and all this you know shorthand effort to summarize how much money you need to save in retirement. The answer is different for everybody. It all comes down to how much money do you need to sustain your lifestyle. So let's start there. Let's pretend you were to retire today. How much money would you and your wife need to spend to maintain your lifestyle
3: per year? Um, perhaps. 60, 70,000. I mean, we don't live extravagantly. Our house is basically paid for.
1: So let's call it 70 grand. I'll take you at your word. We usually discover, by the way, that people underestimate it, but we'll go with what you said $70,000 a year. Now, that is after tax because that's what you need to spend to sustain your lifestyle. That means if you only get 70 grand in income and you have to pay taxes on the 70 grand, you end up with less that you can spend. So we have to gross up the number for taxes. And that means we have to take a prediction on what tax rates are going to be. And of course, who knows what that number is going to be by the time you retire. Let's assume though, just for the sake of conversation, that we're going to deal with a uh, 25% tax rate, just to, just to pick a number. So if you're going to spend $70,000, then that means you're going to need to have uh, an income. Let me just do some fast math here for you. That means you're going to need about $93,000 so that you can net $70,000 after paying taxes. Does that make sense? Yes. So you've got 50000 from your wife's pension. That's toward the 93000 that you need. So that means you're $43,000 short. Are either of you going to be eligible for Social Security?
3: Yeah, we both will be.
1: And you have an idea of how much you're going to receive? Have you looked on your Social Security website to see what your projected benefit will be?
3: I have, but I don't have that figure in front of me. I'm sorry.
1: I'm going to bet it's around $1,500 to $2,000. The average check is about $1,400, $1,500. Bucks. Uh, higher income uh, Americans are earning, obviously, more from Social Security. Let's pretend between the two of you that you're going to collect 3000 a month which is $36,000 a year. That means that you're short by only 7 grand. You've got how much money in your Roth savings?
3: Uh, probably just under 300,000.
1: So, if you've got $300,000 in the account and you only need to withdraw 7,000, well that is a withdrawal rate of about 2% per year. That Is easy. In other words, if you withdraw two, two and a half percent per year from the account, you'll get the 7,000 you need. Add that to your Social Security and your wife's pension. You've got all the income you need. In fact, I would argue that you could withdraw a lot more than just seven grand out of the account. It's common for people to withdraw four percent per year from an account. And that would be, you know, if you were to withdraw four percent, that would be $12,000 a year. That would boost your income over a hundred grand a year pre tax. Giving you an increase in your lifestyle.
3: I may have underfigured, but I mean, you know, I, I'm sure we would like to travel and do some things like that.
1: No question about it. Uh, so just this back of the napkin quick set of math is basically telling us that you and your wife are in excellent financial condition. And what you need to be doing now is maintain your position through the rest of your working career so that you, in fact, get to retirement the way you want. There are a lot of factors we want to play with. For example, how many more years between now and retirement? How much are you continuing to save? Uh, How much are you going to be earning in those savings between now and retirement? In other words, what I've just laid out assumes no more savings and no more growth on your Roth account. That's not realistic. You're continuing to save and you're continuing to earn a return on those accounts over years. So I think you're in great shape. My 30-second math is not bad, but two-hour math will be better. Two-week math will be even better yet. In other words, meeting with a financial advisor who can go through a more thorough analysis for you, who can evaluate all of the issues in great depth, will be able to come back to you with a complete set of calculations to show you how much money you need to save between now and retirement, what the rate of return needs to be on those savings, and how long you need to keep working in order to be able to retire in financial security. That advisor might even say to you, you can probably retire anytime you want you may be able to retire sooner than you thought. It'd be great. So I would encourage you to meet with a financial advisor who can do that set of calculations for you. That's what a financial plan is all about. Um, we'd be happy to do it for you. We've got offices not far from you in both Chesterfield and Clayton. Uh, so come to see us. Go see somebody. There are great financial planners throughout the country and not far from you where you live. So talk to somebody. You might even talk to a couple of somebodies to get a couple of opinions, and that way you can compare and contrast the advice you're getting. Okay. Terry, thank you so much for calling. I appreciate it. That was Terry here on the Rick Edelman Show. You can do what he did. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. Let's say hi to Gene in Folsom, California. Welcome to the program, Gene. How can I help you today?
2: Well, I've been thinking recently about taking my initial investment out of stocks that have increased and wondered if that is a wash sale on your taxes. I thought it seemed prudent. Uh, to take some off the table, as they say, and uh, wasn't quite sure about that.
1: Got it. So so let me ask you, Jean, if you were to sell these stocks today, what would you do with the money?
2: I really have. Uh, Reinvest it. You know, just uh, hopefully uh, in the next downturn, buy more stock probably.
1: Got it. Here's how the tax rules work. If you own a stock and you sell it for a profit, you're going to pay taxes on that profit. You can turn around and rebuy that stock again, and you will then pay taxes on that profit when you sell those shares in the future. No big deal. But that works only if you have a profit. Let's say that you sell a stock for a loss. If you sell a stock for a loss, you get to take a tax deduction for the loss. But if you rebuy that same stock within 30 days... You're not allowed to take the loss. That's where the wash sale rule comes into effect. In other words, the IRS says you can't sell the stock, capture the tax loss, and then rebuy the stock immediately because you only played a tax game. You weren't really economically trying to get rid of the investment. And so they make you stay out of that stock for 30 days. So you would have a choice. You either don't sell it or you sell it and wait for 30 days you can, as an alternative, go buy a different stock. In other words, let's say that you sell Google, you can then go buy Apple, You know, as long as you don't buy the same stock. Now, many people would argue, but there's a big difference between Google and Apple. I wanted to own Google. I didn't want to own Apple. So it's a bit hard to do that with individual stocks. It's easier with stock mutual funds or ETFs. You could sell one growth fund and buy another growth fund. As long as you're not buying the same exact fund, then the wash sale rule won't apply. So it sounds like none of this matters to you because your stocks all have gains. And therefore, the wash sale rule does not apply to you. You don't have to worry about it.
2: All right. Say, Facebook, I have a considerable gain in that. And it seems like I should take some off the table. But I'm thinking about that initial amount that I purchased it with. Is that still... Deducted
1: from the gain. So let me explain to you how the gains are calculated. You take the amount you receive for selling the stock. You subtract your cost of buying it. The result is your profit. So let's say that you sold it for a hundred dollars, but you had spent twenty dollars to buy it. A hundred minus twenty equals eighty. Eighty is your taxable profit. I see.
2: Well, I appreciate that very much, and uh, thank you for taking my call.
1: You're very welcome, Gene. And I think this is further illustration of why mere mortals should not be preparing their own tax returns and why you should rely on a tax advisor and financial advisor to help you figure all this out. What we also didn't even discuss is whether or not you ought to be selling these stocks and whether if you do sell the stocks, you ought to be buying them with similar like-kind stocks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It all comes down to portfolio management, risk management, how to get the returns you need, as opposed to just a get rich quick, I'm going to try to make money fast and all that kind of good stuff. So, Gene, thank you so much for the call. I'm really glad you did. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com.
0: More with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: go to the phones. Off to the Big Apple here on the Rick Edelman Show. Ken is calling from New York City. Welcome to the program, Ken. Thank you, Rick. I just recently began listening to you, and I quite enjoyed the show. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you are having a good time with it. How can I help you today?
4: Yes. So my question is, um, investment advisors often give, uh, depending on the client's risk tolerance of asset allocations in the ballpark, say 60-40 based on the risk tolerances. Uh, Now, my question is, should that advice be modified if an investor has enough in low-risk assets, let's say short-term bond and money market funds, to pay for living expenses for seven years, you know, taking both inflation and taxes into account? I mean, that longer period, to me, would seem to allow for safety against forced selling in a prolonged bear market and time for the market to recover. Uh, In that scenario, could not higher-risk investments be pushed far upward in in the usual allocation?
1: Yes, but... I'm not sure that's as efficient, uh, meaning as effective, as the alternative approach would be. So let me explain to you the alternative approach, and then we can debate which one you like better. So you've got seven years' worth of cash reserves. I mean, you can pay your bills, maintain your lifestyle for seven years without having to liquidate your investments. Yes? Correct. Without liquidating any more risky investments. Correct. Correct. Got it. Uh, normally, we tell our clients to save anywhere from three months to 24 months worth of spending in cash reserves. Um, more than that, and you're well beyond that extreme, you know, even if we go with a two-year number, you're at a seven-year number. The reason that we don't like that much in cash is because, as you know, today's low interest rates, you're earning 0.0 nothing on super safe uh, liquid accounts, and inflation is, you know, taking its toll on those. So what I would argue an alternative approach would be, instead of having what you're describing as a barbell, a ton of money in cash on one end, and a ton of money in riskier investments on the other end, I would argue that we reduce your cash allocation down to two years. You might twist my arm and make it three years. And then with the rest of the money, build that more diversified 60-40-ish, maybe 65-35, or even 70-30 approach so that more of your money is working for you, I believe, and this is just off the top of my head, I'd want to do the number crunching to confirm it. I believe that having more of your money invested 6535 would be better for you in the long run than having less of your money in a 9010 or an 8515. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. So I'd want to run the numbers, though, to
4: confirm yeah, I mean, looking back historically, there have been, you know, really, really prolonged times when, when things have been underwater. Um, but uh, but I take your point. Uh, would you then do sort of a moderate risk assets to change it in, in that direction?
1: If we were going to go my route, meaning more money invested than less, yes, I would maintain a 60-40, 65-35, something in that genre. If you are truly risk tolerant, meaning you have a high threshold of risk and you don't mind volatility, I might go 70-30, uh, depending on how much time horizon you have. You sound like a young guy. How old are you, Ken? Uh, I'm, actually, I'm 65. 65. What's your time horizon then? How long do you expect to leave this money? Let's see how long we live, right? Yeah. So in other words, you don't have any, any immediate plans for spending the money to buy a house or world travel or who knows what. Then, then yeah, I, you could twist my arm and go 70-30 if you wanted to, knowing that you had two or three years of savings in the bank. So... I think that math would probably work better for you than your approach of seven years in the bank and the rest of the money at higher risk I think that would probably be better but I emphasize I'd want to crunch the numbers to be sure we've got offices of course throughout New York as, as you know and Grand Central and Staten Island but of course these days everybody's on zoom um, but uh, I'd want I'd want us to crunch the numbers for you to, to prove out my thesis to see if I'm right and here's the good news here's the good news whether I'm right or wrong, because of the two choices that we kind of have in front of us, both are good choices. So you're not going to make a mistake either way. It's merely a question of what's most effective for you in the long run in terms of maintaining your lifestyle coupled with wealth accumulation. So I think you're choosing between the greater of the goods. Uh, I just think mine is gooder than yours.
4: Well, I appreciate that. That's that's really
1: helpful. And, And I thank you. Thanks very much. Let's continue with our telephone calls. We're going off to Fairfax, Virginia. Mike is with us, standing by. Hello, Mike. How are you? Hi, I'm good, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. It's a pleasure to speak with you. You too. How can I help? Well,
5: so for the past couple of years, I've used some of my spending money to invest in startups that are raising capital on these equity crowdfunding platforms, such as StartEngine and WeFunder. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that you could tell me and your listeners a little bit more about these crowdfunding sites, like how long have they been around? Why do startups like to choose them to raise their capital? And if people like me are interested in investing in companies on these sites, is there a healthy approach towards doing so where we set limits and manage our expectations? Or would you recommend that we just steer clear of these sites altogether?
1: This is a uh, relatively new phenomenon. It was created into law during the Obama administration that is basically taking advantage of technology that in the traditional old days, if you were a company and you needed Capital to build your business, you had to raise capital predominantly through the public markets, and you had to do that via the investment banks of Wall Street. They're the ones that arranged for initial public offerings of shares of stock of companies. That's still today the common way that companies raise capital. But What we're now acknowledging is that small companies also need to raise capital, but they don't need to raise all that much. And investment banks don't want to help them because the deals aren't big enough for them to bother with. So how does a small business raise a few hundred thousand dollars that it might need to do whatever it is it's trying to do? Well, the government allowed these crowdfunding sites to be developed. There are limits as to how much money can be raised and limits as to how many people can participate. Uh, and it bypasses the Wall Street machine, which dramatically reduces the cost to the company of getting the deal done. So the good news is you now have access to investment opportunities that previously you wouldn't have had in the past uh, because these companies would not have tried to raise capital or because they would have have gone to Wall Street where you never would have had access to the deals because the opportunities would have been scarfed up by big institutional investors who were, quote unquote, first in line for stock allocations. So, yeah, they're kind of cool that they do give you an opportunity to gain access to investments that you might not have had opportunity to before. That's the good news. The bad news is that with no middleman involved, without a Wall Street investment bank involved, there's nobody really vetting this deal. You don't really know – if this company is really worth they're receiving your money. Are they going to pull off what they're trying to pull off? Who's doing the due diligence on this company? Investigating the financials of the company, the management team, the strategy they've developed, the competitive and regulatory analysis that's necessary to decide whether or not they are worthy of your money. Is the offering fairly priced? In other words, for every share you buy, are you buying at a reasonable price based on future projected earnings? Of the company, uh, and so on. So, it really is placing the burden on you, the investor, to evaluate this very carefully. And it's therefore extraordinarily risky. It's a small company, questionable financials. You're um, not really certain as to whether or not they're going to succeed. So, this is without a doubt a very high level of risk in the world of stock investing. And for that reason, you should, in my view, A, either not do it at all, or B, not spend much money uh, with any one deal that you choose to buy, uh, because it has to be categorized as risk capital. Got it. Thank you. So I would say have fun. Don't bet the family farm. And if you want to do it, I would treat it almost as much as entertainment as I would investment. That's what I've been
5: doing. I haven't been um, investing much more than maybe 100 to $200 on, on one of these stocks, which is usually the minimum that they require.
1: Yeah. You know, if you treat it like that, have a good time. You can chat about it with friends and it beats talking about, you know, what's going on in the latest sport of your choice or movies or books. You can talk about this instead. It's fun. And who knows? You may accidentally invest in the next Amazon.com, although I doubt it.
5: Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: You're very welcome, Mike. Thanks for the phone call. I'm Rick Edelman here on The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com.
0: Money doesn't come with instructions. More of your questions coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: Take a phone call here on the program. Off to Marietta, Georgia. Don is with us on the air. Welcome to the show, Don. Hi, Rick. Thanks for hearing my story. Well, I'm happy to have you call. Tell me your story. What's going on?
6: Well, I had a financial advisor for almost 15 years, and she did very well with stocks. But at some point, she purchased a REIT for about $80,000, and she later sold it for a profit. Uh, Last September, I changed financial advisors and found that I had three REITs and all lost money, some because of COVID. The original investment was about $80,000, and now looks like it has a paper value of about 67000 And here's the issue. I'm 79 years old, and I want to cash them in. So I've talked to several of their investment uh, investor relations people, and they tell me I have to wait for a liquidity event, or I have three options. One is that two is being a memory facility three is sick and dying and all of those are unacceptable <laughs> so my question is how do i get out of this thing
1: well die uh, or you know i mean <laughs> you're just like they said don i'm sorry i don't mean to be laugh it's not funny so these are not merely reits these are non-traded reits yes and there's a difference between the two a reit is a real estate investment trust I'll call it like a mutual fund of real estate. That's not a really totally fair statement, but it's kind of gets the point across. It's a fund that invests in real estate and it kind of looks like a mutual fund, meaning it trades on a daily basis. You buy and sell REITs on the open exchanges. They have daily liquidity and market prices fluctuate just like any other investment. Those are ordinary REITs. But separately, there's a category of non-traded REITs. These are REITs that don't trade on the daily markets and there is no liquidity You when you buy them you're locked in typically for 10 years and you really can't sell other than to draconian methodology that is generally going to get you much less than the current market value right right and why does an advisor sell non-traded REITs to their clients typically because they have 8% to 10% commissions So that $80,000 you invested, your advisor earned eight grand. That's how these things work. And we're not big fans, as you can imagine, of non-traded REITs as a result of that. So what are your recourses? Well, as they said, there are very small, limited reasons for them to provide liquidity, death, uh, going to a long-term care facility, uh, et cetera, none of which apply to you and none of which you want to apply to you. The second choice is to hold on to it. Uh, and wait for its maturity, wait for it to become liquid in a 7- to 10-year window. Third choice is to go ahead and sell it. And that means you've got to find a buyer. There are organizations that engage in this activity that help people get out of illiquid assets. They are typically called vulture funds. (laughs) Yeah, you can imagine why they get their name. Because they basically are not trying to deal with a distressed asset. They're dealing with a distressed seller. Some people who buy these illiquid assets discover that they need the money sooner than they anticipated, or they didn't even realize it was illiquid when they bought it because of shenanigans in the sales process. And now they realize they want to get out. And so someone will come along saying, I'll be happy to buy it from you, but they're going to offer you 20 or 30% less than it's actually worth. That's why they're called vultures. So that means if this asset is worth 67 grand, they might offer you 40 or 50 grand for it which means you really, really need to want the money really bad in order to take that deal. So tell me, how badly do you need the money? Well, I don't need the money
6: badly, but according to what you just said, I probably have to wait till I'm 85 to collect it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then we're not going to really be sure what the value of it's going to be at that time. Some people will get out of these investments early, suffering the reduced benefits of doing so because they figure it's only going to get worse down the road. In other words, if you're only going to get fifty grand. At age 85, you might as well sell it now for the 50 grand. So what you really need to do is have an advisor, an independent advisor, not someone who sold you this product and not someone who has a vested interest in you keeping this product, but someone who can evaluate it to see what its prospects are. What is its current value in the open marketplace if you were to sell it to a vulture fund? And what are its future prospects so that you can evaluate, should you get rid of it now or should you hold on to it and get rid of it later? Which is the lesser of the evils? Well, I've heard that two of them are
6: okay. One's doing well, uh, the second one is medium, and the third one is uh, probably defunct.
1: Oh my, defunct. Yeah. Uh, what it means is you're not going to be able to sell it for any price if it's defunct.
6: I'm Googled, and, and uh, there's nothing but lawsuits.
1: Oh my. They were referred to as a Ponzi scheme, so... Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, then, if that's really the case, you might have recourse against the advisor who sold it to you. Oh, So you might want to consider talking with a securities attorney to see if you can file a lawsuit, file a complaint uh, to FINRA, the regulatory authority that oversees brokers, or file um, an arbitration claim or a lawsuit against the broker and the firm for having sold you something that has turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. One last question. What is a liquidity
6: event? They all say they're having a, a liquidity event between now and July. Or is that just to get you off the phone?
1: No, if that's true, then it means what they're doing is selling the real estate that they own. In other words, when you buy the fund, they take your money with everybody else's money, and they go buy real estate. And then later, they'll sell the real estate, returning everybody their money. Hopefully, the real estate went up in value, and everybody makes a profit. If the real estate fell in value, then everybody suffers a loss.
6: Well, great. That's what uh, I understand one of them is doing it, and the other one's considering doing it. The third one, I think I'll have to talk to an attorney on that one. (laughs)
1: Maybe. And let's also keep this in mind, Don, when they say there's a liquidity event, they own lots of real estate. They don't just own one building. So they might only be selling some of the real estate in July. They might not be selling all of it. So you might get some of your money back as opposed to all your money back. And you also have to verify with them when they do have a liquidity event, meaning they do sell some of the real estate, do they automatically return that part of the capital back to you? Or do they maybe take that capital and buy more real estate, resetting the clock for the future. So you've got to find out what are they doing? How are they doing it? What does it mean for you in terms of getting your money back? Great. I know where to go then. Don, thank you so much. I really appreciate your phone call. Great. I appreciate it. You're welcome. That was Don in Marietta, Georgia, here on the Rick Edelman Show. There was a survey just recently done of 2,000 Americans with some astonishing findings. 26%. One out of four Americans say they would rather talk politics with someone they disagree with than do financial planning with a family member. I mean, that just strikes me as kind of amazing. People will seem to do anything to avoid financial planning. 20% say they'd rather spend an hour in jail than get a financial plan. 16% say they'd rather sit through a steamy sex scene with their parents than tell them about their biggest financial blunder. 27% of Americans would rather be stung by a bee than move to a new bank. And 32%, one out of three, would rather go to the DMV than get a financial plan. I mean, really? (laughs) What am I? Chop liver? Is really, are we that awful? Is the financial planning process that distasteful? I think what it comes down to is that folks are very self-conscious about their situation. Let's face it, you're embarrassed. You think you have too much debt. You think you don't have enough savings. You think you're spending money frivolously or, frankly, worse. You think others are going to think that. And you don't want the judgment. You don't want to have to sit there in front of an advisor who says to you, You're a slob. You're lazy. You're doing it all wrong. Look at the mistakes, how you've squandered opportunity. Look at that. No, I mean, there is no financial planning professional I know of who would treat you that way. And it's not merely an issue that you know you need to spend less and save more. That's not it at all. I mean, it's sort of like why people don't go to the doctor. Why go to the doctor? He's just going to tell me. To quit smoking, start exercising, eat less, and get better sleep. I mean, why do I need to pay a physician to have her tell me that? Well, it's much beyond that. The reason you go to a financial advisor is simply because there are things about your personal finances that you don't know, Then you don't even know that you don't know. We can show you how to tweak some of the things you're doing, some of the opportunities in front of you that can help you without any significant effort or time or money, help you to save more and to accumulate more assets. It's really that simple. We can show you how to take better advantage of your employee benefits at work. We can show you how to save money on things you're already spending money on. We can show you how to have an easier time dealing with your taxes. We can show you how to better protect yourself and your family, and ease your anguish and create peace of mind when it comes to estate planning or insurance or any of the fundamental issues that we're dealing with on a daily basis. And by extension, we can probably show you how to accumulate more wealth, and we'll do it non-judgmentally. We don't really care as financial planners how you got where you are. Unless what got you where you are is perpetuating your current circumstance. Meaning if you're being a spendthrift and that's interfering with your ability to save, it's creating a lot of debt, well then yeah, we'll show you how to break those habits and how to do things a little differently. But other than that, if you've got a bunch of money in credit card debt, so what? Okay, great, you got a bunch of credit card debt. Let's deal with that and move forward. We're not gonna berate you for what you did that got you where you are. We're not historians. We're also not psychologists. We are planners, which means we focus on the future. So all we care about is where are you right now and where is it you want to go? Very often, in fact, people don't even know where they want to go. And we're pretty good at helping you figure that out too, figuring out what the goals are that you want to set and then showing you a practical, tangible, achievable way to achieve those goals. It's really that simple. So I hope you'll not put financial planning in the context of spending time with people that you'll argue with or an uncomfortable circumstance with your parents and the video that you happen to be watching or spending an hour in jail or getting stung by the bee or heaven forbid the stereotypical visit to the DMV. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. If we can help you with any of your financial decisions, strategies, questions you've got about your personal finances, call us. 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at rickedelman.com
0: Money doesn't come with instructions. More of your questions coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: go to the telephones here on the rick edelman show we've got troy with us from indiana welcome to the program troy how are you I'm good very well rick how are you doing i'm hanging in like everybody else is trying to these days what can i do for you today
5: well um i wanted to ask you a question get your advice on something um, my wife and i have about 15 years until we retire and uh we have several old 401ks and a couple uh, iras and uh an advisor is is Recommending that we take the, um, this, capture this dollar amount since these accounts are at all time highs and put it, put them into a 10 year single premium fixed index deferred annuity. So I want to get your advice on that.
1: You're not dealing with a financial advisor, Troy. You're dealing with an insurance agent who's disguising himself as a financial advisor. Uh, that's incredibly bad advice, uh, and it is also filled with conflicts of interest. Did he tell you what the commission would be on that annuity if you were to do what he's telling you to do?
5: Yeah, he, he had mentioned that he's really not making anything out of this um and and the, there's a small fee with with the company the that, that's going to go into this this product um but as far as he is concerned he's not going to make anything on this uh, deferred index annuity so that's why i kind of like the red flag and, and the contact you to see what your opinion was.
1: uh it is highly likely that he's lying um, because the vast majority of these products have very high commissions, as high as 10%. You invest $100,000, he earns $10,000. Um, there are some of these products that exist in the marketplace that are fee-based annuities that do not generate a commission for the advisor, but those are only used by advisors who charge fees for managing assets. Do you pay a fee, an, an asset management fee to your advisor on a quarterly basis?
5: No, no, we are not using uh, this advisor for any of our IRAs or anything like that. So um, I'm kind of running this and managing it myself right now, and I'm not part of any annuity. I'm just using like uh, ETFs and index funds and things like that.
1: Yeah. It it sounds like this advisor is not an advisor. Um, It was misleading for him to say to you uh, that there wasn't much of a commission and that he isn't earning anything for having you do this, that there's a small fee you pay to the insurance company. That That is uh, a severe breach of ethical responsibility and, frankly, the rules of conduct. Um, so let's set that aside. Let's ignore him and his advice. Let's look at the product itself and the nature of his rationale. Yes, the stock market's at an all-time high, but you're not going to be retiring for 15 more years. The question is, do you think the stock market will be higher or lower 15 years from now? What do you think? Higher. If you think the stock market's going to be higher in 15 years, and by the way, I agree with you, uh, why would you want to sell now simply because today is an all-time high compared to the past? Investing isn't about the past, it's about the future. Now, if you want to protect your gains, if there's a fear that, wow, I've made a lot of money recently and i have more money now than ever, and I really don't want to experience a market crash, which I'm worried might happen. Okay, I get that. That's understandable. Well, then what we want to do is diversify. We want to reduce our risks. That doesn't mean buying an annuity product. That means... Taking some of the money that we have in the stock market and diversifying among other asset classes, such as bonds, real estate, gold, oil and gas, natural resources, exponential technologies, digital assets, you name it. I mean, there's a broad array, 18 or so major asset classes in market sectors. Let's build a diversified portfolio so we don't have all of our eggs in one basket. But if we have the risk tolerance and we don't mind volatility, we recognize volatility can actually be our friend, thanks to rebalancing and dollar cost averaging with a 15-year time horizon, we can just shrug our shoulders and say, I'm going to play Rip Van Winkle. I'm going to leave my money invested. I'm going to not look at my portfolio until I get to about 10 years from now, and then I'll figure it all out. And the need to buy an annuity product simply goes away. Okay. Sounds like great advice. So, what I would encourage you to do is work with a true financial advisor, a fiduciary, someone who legally is required to serve your best interests, a fee based advisor. Someone who is treating you the way your doctor and your lawyer and your accountant treat you. Someone who's a true professional serving your best interest as a fiduciary. And that's the first question you want to ask anyone you look to. Are you a fiduciary? And if they say no, walk away and go find somebody else. It's really that simple, Troy.
5: Okay, thank you. I'm glad I called you first.
1: Well, me too. And we're happy to help. If you would like us to, we're happy to do so. You can call the very same number you called today, 888-PLAN-RICK. My colleagues and I here at Edelman Financial Engines, happy to serve you as a fiduciary. Troy, thanks so much. and I wish you the best. Time now for a visit from my wife, Jean Edelman, here on The Rick Edelman Show. Jean, co-founder, of course, here at Edelman Financial Engines with a degree in consumer economics and a specialty in nutrition and an expert in macrobiotic cooking. Jean here with her weekly segment, everybody's favorite of the show.
7: Hi, everyone. The word that popped up this week is cherish. There seem to be a lot of life events that keep reminding me to cherish the moments. Last year, we lost a lot of these moments. And this year, I think is teaching us even more. Don't take anything or anyone for granted. You got a beef with something or someone, talk it through or let it go. Life is too short. We are also being taught we are not in control. There's a higher power out there, and we need to acknowledge it and respect it. We're also learning don't take anyone or anything for granted. It's not about the things, it's about the moments. And so this week is just short and sweet on the word cherish. C is to create. Stop holding on to old thoughts, old patterns, old expectations, old judgments. Create a newer version of ourselves. H is to honor. Honor ourselves and honor others. We each have our own journey. We each have our own story. And you never know, if we sit and talk long enough, we might learn something. The E is for effervescence vivacious, enthusiastic. This is how we should feel about life. The R is for real. It's time to get real. Speak what you know to be our own truth. Stop hiding. The I is for illuminate. That is what we should do with our thoughts, our actions, our words. We are all stars, and it is time to shine. The S is for smile, We light up when we smile, and we light those around us up when we smile. Lots of smiles. And H is for hope. We're human, and we always have hope. We hope for a better tomorrow. We hope for a better world. We hope for a better life for our kids. So cherish those around us. No more hate, no more intolerance, no more judgment. When we cherish and honor and respect each other, The world can be a better place.
1: That was Gene Edelman here on The Rick Edelman Show. Thank you very much for joining me on the program today. If you need us, we're here for you. 888-PLAN-RICK, online at rickedelman.com. See you next week.
0: Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.